Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking private equity and its role in energy transition. Trillions of dollars of capital are needed to achieve the energy transition. Yet there are real challenges and complexities in how organizations go about deploying that capital and thus defining private equity's role in the sector. We're going to discuss the opportunities and those complexities and in part how to overcome them. Our guest is John Scriner, partner at Cresta Funds, a mid-market, midstream and downstream focused private equity group that invests in the energy transition. Also, on February 22nd in London, we have our latest HC Insider podcast live event, this time hosted by Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. We'll be discussing the trading future of critical metals. Tickets are free but limited, so please RSVP. I'll put the links in the show notes if you wish to attend. As always, you can really support the show by leaving us a five-star review or a thumbs up on YouTube or wherever you listen to the podcast. It really does support the show, enable us to build our audience and continue to get great guests. And as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. Glad to be here. So we're talking today about private equity and private equity's role within the energy transition. Let's, I guess, let's all just get on the same page for a moment. Can you just sort of give us an outline of what we mean by private equity and its typical typical goals and, and targets and timeframes and so forth in, in how they go about investments? We think of private equity as four different things that have four different labels, right? So the, the early stage, riskier, higher return bucket is, is typically venture capital. And then you've got growth equity, buyout and infrastructure. And there's all kinds of other, you know, little subsectors within there. But those are the four main things, I guess. And, and traditionally, it's VC growth equity and buyout and infra has sort of emerged in the last 20 years as its own asset class. And you've got infra focused funds all over the place now. And you know, you've seen recent transactions where BlackRock bought uh, GIP. They wanted to to augment their infrastructure efforts, and and that was how they they decided to to do that. And so that's you know again, this is a it's an evolving world, but those are the four main places where private equity capital is deployed. Perfect. And and just typically in general, how do these organizations go about investing? What are their sort of the mechanisms to realize value and, and roughly the timeframes? Again, it depends on 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 the objectives. You know, it's equity, it's debt, it's you know alternative credit. Now we've got structures that are called unitranche, where it's it's almost like a, a multiple layers of debt compressed into one security. So some of it is is really long term, right? And you've got groups that are creating continuation funds that are really open-ended and, and meant to hold things for a long time. You know, I think of the type of things that the Crest is involved in is, is shorter term. You know, VC stuff is, it depends on, on how they exit, right? It could be a couple of years. It could be a longer time. Buyout capital, which is probably the largest pool of capital in private equity, you know, a seven to 10 year type, type capital. Ours tends to be 
under five year holds in our investments. So it's it's a it's a range, right? It's a, it's a large range, depending on the the goals and objectives of the of the capital. And and typically, I'm right in saying that the majority, especially in the buyout realm, you know, these aren't passive investors, right? They're typically there to change management teams to to work with the organization to really drive a better outcome than were they to continue on their own, so to speak. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's, there's, again, there's, there's lots of different styles. I, again, I don't, there's thousands of private equity firms now, you know, there's the big household names that people recognize like Carlisle and KKR and, and Blackstone. And then there's, there's lots of small um, mid-market funds that are you know, more similar to Cresta, like, somewhere between 500 million and $2 billion under management. And so everyone has their own style, but I think, you know, the historical perspective and, and a lot of those large generalist private equity firms are, are, are doing that. They're, they're, they're looking to combine businesses, create efficiencies, you know, financial optimization around the capital structure, right-sizing the, the the size of the teams and, and the, you know, the employee bases at certain companies. And so, you know, that's, that's a strategy. That's not what we're involved in. And I don't think at this stage of the energy transition that there's a lot of room, there, there's a lot of capital that's been formed around energy transition in those types of strategies. Our perspective is there's not a lot for that capital to do yet. There just aren't large platforms to go and combine and, and optimize yet. We've got to spend a lot more time building before we get there. Fantastic. Okay. And we're going to move on to the energy transition shortly. But just to set the scene, you know, how has the broader macro environment been for private equity since COVID, right? There's been a lot of challenges yeah. and a lot of seismic changes, particularly when it comes to interest rates, a, a story that we've covered uh, quite extensively on, on this platform. Can you just give us sort of set the scene for us? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I think there's been obviously the, the world has shifted dramatically over the last four years, and and there has been a lot of great opportunities to to deploy capital and and make great returns. There's also been a lot of things that have have been headwinds. Obviously, as as you mentioned, interest rates, but certainly, especially around the energy transition, I think what happened in COVID and and throughout the last few years has created an urgency around the energy transition that I think is creating a lot of opportunities. That being said, I, I think there's also, there's in addition to interest rates, there's a lot of other headwinds. I think the costs of the energy transition are probably starting to be realized in, in certain instances. You know, I think a few years ago, everybody was very excited about hydrogen as a, as a fuel and as a, a molecule that's going to power everything. I, I just, you know the physics and the practical reality of it are, are aren't such, uh, at least in today's world. Maybe at, at some point in the future, and so I just think there's a lot that has to be done, and so there's opportunities and there's challenges as there always are, and I, and I think that maybe what COVID had created was extreme tales of of wonderful opportunities and and really significant headwinds. Uh, obviously, the the passage of the IRA in in the U.S. and that's impact on the energy transition is potentially quite profound. I think there's obviously a lot that's to be determined with that legislation and how it's interpreted and applied, but potential significant tailwinds too. So, I, I think it's pretty balanced, Paul. I think there's a there's 
there's lots of challenges and lots of opportunities and you've got to figure out how to how to navigate it and try and succeed yeah which is the story we're about to tell about the the opportunities and those complexities and some of the some of the the ways to approach those just saying okay so let's just talk the opportunity of the energy transition there's sort of two elements to this right there's there's one which is the scale of change that is demanded and the opportunities for those that are going to be in financing that but just the sheer scale right the trillions of dollars globally they're going to be needed to decarbonize the economy and at the same time make aspects of it more sustainable there's also the sort of the flip side of that which is a little bit narrative and expectations at least in the public can sometimes be in way in advance of the the time frames and the scale of lift required right so can you just i guess you know talking about the energy transition can you just in i guess in your context is is this sort of dominating every single potential opportunity out there and and really do you think private equity itself as a broader sector is aligned to step up to that challenge the scale is tremendous right and i think the the corollary that we often draw as we talk to investors is shale and the midstream opportunity from you know early aughts to 2015-16 and how that evolved from really opportunistic midstream companies trying to connect a seller of, of something and a buyer of something and, and where they could fit in between. And, and as, as that evolved, it became really dominated by strategics who came in and, and said, well, we can, we can manage this whole thing. We don't need these middle middlemen. And that was a couple hundred billion, you know, many hundreds of billions of dollars opportunity that was pursued pretty rapidly by by private equity firms and and alternative capital. And I think that the, the scale that we're talking here is many, many times that, right? Like trillions upon trillions of dollars of of potential capital formation around opportunities in the energy transition. And so, you know, that that is that's the, the you know that sort of Permian shale opportunity set that people that's fresh in people's minds and sort of how that evolved is the is the closest corollary and then you can also look at sort of the evolution of green power right you know early 90s is when you started to see wind become you know, more prevalent and and that was a, a 30 year runway to to where we are now where it's you know one of the cheapest sources of power albeit intermittent but but one of the cheapest sources of power on the planet and and that's uh that's a that's a long opportunity set so you I, we look at those two markets over the last you know 15 and, and 30 years and try to see how they are you know a barometer for what is likely to happen in in this energy transition segment S- certainly on the non power side of things. I think that's pretty well attended. There's a lot of capital there. There's a lot of experience building and 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 developing those assets by really large global companies. There's publicly traded pure plays around them. And on our, you know, where we're looking in the decarbonization of non-power, there's just not as there's not been as much capital formed. And so, you know, that's where we're we're focused I think that's where there's, there's the biggest opportunity. Comparing to the sort of the, the the tech opportunity suite that's been present for the last forty years and the extraordinary amount of wealth that's created for venture capital, private equity, and so forth, 
this transition is is sort of a hardware not software transition right it's very much playing into i guess the infrastructure spectrum of of private equity and in some ways kind of back to basics in terms of investing capital and so forth yeah absolutely look and i think there's a a lot of capital raised in the vc world for clean tech and i think our perspective on that is that that it's needed and there's a lot of great things that are happening and are probably going to continue to happen coming out of that early incubator type of capital but you know the challenge that we see is as you build you know salesforce.com or linkedin or instagram you know the next user you add is is effectively free it doesn't you know you've, you've built out the the infrastructure to to power your systems and so you can just keep growing and have you know whether you have 5 billion or 8 billion users on your on your platform the costs to run it aren't aren't significantly different when you invent a new way to create a fuel that doesn't have the same scale it's still going to cost you you know x millions or x billions or whatever the the quantum that we're speaking of to install that right you've got to go and build the real asset that's going to do what you want it to do and so i think there's this challenge between the vc mindset and the infrastructure mindset and certainly infrastructure type capital is looking for really stable yields they don't want any risk they want credit worthy counterparties they want fully wrapped construction projects and that's the type of, of, of you know projects that that capital is looking for low risk low yield sort of the bond mentality and and vc is very different and i think that what we need is somewhere in the middle of those two things around the energy transition and and i think folks are still trying figuring out exactly what that's going to look like and and how those risks are going to be interpreted and and, and who's going to bear them right yeah and and let's i guess let's lean into that because i'm i'm i think this is a bit of a unique opportunity to get some insight into someone who's been looking at all of these many different projects you know who's been in the energy sector for yourself for you know nearly 20 years you know there's so much complexity here and you know you can classify it around technology policy regulation land use you know there's geographic variances you know let's start with the technology piece one of the challenges of the energy transition, as I see it, is there's some, you know, we, we kind of know the end state, right, which is in the end really going to be about the electron. The pathways to get there are much less certain. And you just see that on, for example, hydrogen's journey, right? You know, we're already seeing today in Europe, county councils, regional districts that invested in hydrogen buses are now scrapping them, you know. And so there's a lot of technology volatility there how you know can you give me some sense of is that a fair statement and and secondly how do you go about mitigating that aspect sure yeah well i i think it's a very accurate statement just to to say that out at, at first i mean you know hydrogen let's just pick on hydrogen for a second because you you raise it as the example i think as we think through hydrogen it's got a lot of great attributes <laughs> energy density is not one of them you know it's a very small molecule so it's leaky um and and it doesn't transport well and so you've got to do other things to make it move around and i think 
when you combust hydrogen, it's it's thought of as this holy grail molecule because there's no no emissions. But the reality of making hydrogen at scale and deploying it into all these different uses that I think have been been advertised globally for the last four three or four years as as where you could be using hydrogen. I just from our perspective, it's not you know it it goes against the laws of physics. As with what we have today, with the infrastructure we have today, with the power generation we have today, you know, and 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 sort of what we see on the horizon for the next decade or two. I'm sort of just interested in the process, right? The thought process, because yes, again, right, and I think about this podcast journey with hydrogen, right? And our first one was sort of you know the Swiss Army knife approach. You know, this is amazing to sort of a much more nuanced look at it. And and there aren't many experts in in many of the facets of the energy transition, right? It's this is not you know, lots of these technologies are nascent. There's only very few individuals who understand that. Not only the, obviously the the technological piece itself, but also the application. I mean, how do you can imagine? There's a number of private equity firms that have probably fallen into the trap around investing in, let's say, a particular given hydrogen as a fuel project that's now looking pretty bleak. I mean, sort of, you know how does you know how, what are the sort of the frameworks the process to be able to actually sort of manage that technological volatility it's a great question paul and i think the reality is it's not really a technological challenge right the technology to make green hydrogen is there we know how to do it it's been replicated a number of times it's just really expensive and getting the right supply and source of power is, is still somewhat of a challenge. And then again, using it, right? If you're gonna put it into a bus, it's just not the right molecule for that. Today, I think where we see hydrogen opportunities that make sense is where you have great renewable power production, some region, right? Let's use the Southwest US. You've got great solar attributes. You can generate you know, you know, tremendous renewable power supply while intermittent it's still you know significant then you've got the ability to take that green power electrolyze it and turn it into green hydrogen if you can use that on site it's a tremendous value proposition but if you've got to then take that hydrogen and put it in a pipeline or blend it with methane and move it through a pipeline or put it into compress it and put it into a tank and drive it somewhere else it just decays the the, the return uh, on that energy investment, right? I guess that's the best way for me to put it. And so when we're looking at hydrogen, we're looking at very specific opportunities to where either that green hydrogen is a lower cost production of hydrogen than the incumbent gray hydrogen, or it's a lower or, or a, a similar cost, but the areas where you can monetize your end product are compensating you with some sort of cost of carbon. And so that to us is the only way that you can really invest in hydrogen today. I mean, we've got this great new you know, potential law coming out, the 45V as part of the IRA. And you know, Treasury's been working like crazy to put this out. And they, they gave some guidance at the end of the year. And, and you know, there's going to be a big a big fight over what it, what it, what's going to be considered green hydrogen in the U.S. and what's not going to be considered green hydrogen in the U.S. Once that's settled, I think you'll be able to make more of those types of, of investments comfortably. But today, 
we still don't even know what the rules really are, right? And I think that's that's a big part of yeah. it. And that's you know we're sort of leaking into policy now, but but I think that's you know it's a natural transition from the the you know the first part of this conversation. Yeah, it sounds like what's key is obviously actually moving beyond the headlines. And obviously, you know, this is this is why you know it's a it's a well paid community in private equity, right? Because but actually following the molecule, following the electron through to its end use and a deep dive into the economics. Just, I, I'm sort of just fascinated by this idea of kind of, you know, you've got every every week, every day, there's a new sort of panacea technology comes, you know, you, you know, it's, it's going to whatever it might be, right? And it, and it just seems to me that, you know, it's it's probably pretty hard to sort of push back on kind of your investors and say, well, you know, I know, I know you're hearing a lot of headlines about hydrogen, but we're not so sure. And this is kind of why, right? I mean, I, I think there's a bit of stakeholder management there and a bit of kind of narrative management all about the energy transition, just simply by the fact that, yes, it's, an, it's relatively new and there's lots of, there's lots of technologies available out there, all with, you know, attached to lots of promising statements. The challenge that we've got, right, is is what what we believe is needed in this energy transition doesn't fall in the the elegant boxes of buyout or infrastructure or growth equity. It's this chameleon in between a bunch of things. And so oftentimes when we're talking to potential investors, they're not really sure which group we should be you know, engaging with? Is it the infra team? Is it the natural resources team? Is it the real assets team? Is it the private equity, you know, broad generalist group? And so, and I think a lot of our, the LPs out there are still trying to figure out how to invest in this. And, and you know, some dip their toe in VC early because that's how they had done things in the past. And so it was an easy, an easy way to approach it. Others have been more aggressive, but I think the the reality is they're still pretty cautious, at least the, the investors that, that, that we deal with. They're still pretty cautious. And so I don't think we're getting a lot of pressure to chase hydrogen, as an example, or, or green ammonia or, or, you know, or, or anything else that's that's sort of um, in vogue in, in the, the you know, mainstream press. I think the reality is they want stable returns at the return targets, and they're really more focused on us delivering on on our promises around how we invest capital, how we protect their capital, you know, what we do when things go wrong. So, as much as I understand your your question or your your statement, we've actually been pretty lucky that we don't have folks pushing us to do those types of things they're more they're more focused on on us doing what we have been doing and really continuing to do that and and you know how long is that runway is this something you think lasts for 10 years 20 years i think in our mind it's evolving and so the themes that we were investing on in 2020 and 2021 are not the themes that we're investing on today you know in 2021 we embarked on a process to to retrofit an oil refinery to renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. That's not where we're looking today. We think that there's been an, a lot of a build out around that space. We're excited about our project, but to go and start another new project in that area just doesn't seem, it seems like it's, it's a, it's, you're a little bit standing still. We're, you know, to, 
to borrow the phrase from Wayne Gretzky, we want to skate to where the puck is going. And, um, and so that's how we're trying to, to invest. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Okay, well, let's bring in policy and regulation because that also introduces a significant amount of volatility, right? You know, you could be on the right side of the IRA or potentially not, depending on whatever whatever rules and how they land, right? You know, there's also just looking at the moment in EU battery regulation, right? Profound changes over the next decade as how they're treated. I mean, there's this is a consequence, a great consequence of political focus on this as a challenge globally. But you've also got the inefficiencies, the the sort of the time lag to to policy, you know, all of these pieces that mean it can have a profound effect on the economics of your project. And we've just described that, okay, well, to get around the technology piece, ultimately it's about real world economics and due diligence and not sort of wishful thinking. I guess this this adds an element that can distort all of those equations. Yeah, 100%. And it's something that we we focus on all the time. It's something that our, our LPs and prospective LPs are focused on. And it's a question that we, we get constantly. You know, how do you think about policy? Our style and our strategy is to invest around what we view as more durable policy, policy that's been litigated, policy that's been fought by the trade groups of the opposition and supported by the trade groups of the of the proponents. Um, you know, you can look at the RFS in the US. I mean, it's, it's a hotly debated policy, but it's a policy that's been in place for almost 20 years and it's been litigated. And and so I think when we look at investments that some portion of their revenue is going to depend on the RFS, we're okay with that. We understand that that's going to be part of that, that revenue stack. And, and we think it's durable and it's going to be there. We don't think it's going anywhere. Similar, similarly, the California, I mean, there's volatility in the price of the environmental attributes that are created by that policy. And you can't escape that necessarily, but the policy itself is, is durable. Similar to, you know, I said, started bringing up the California LCFS, same, same thing. I don't, that policy is just not going to go anywhere. On the, on the contrary, I, I spoke earlier about the, the 45V, and you know, I just don't think that anybody knows what that's going to look like. And, and once it is finalized, how's it going to be litigated? How's it going to be fought in the courts? How's it going to be fought by politicians? Uh, are they going to, as a new administration and Congress, going to change these things? You know, again, we don't think the RFS is at risk of those types of changes. But new legislation, maybe. And so it's hard to say, I'm going to go out and underwrite a project where I've got, you know, a 45V credit and a 45Q revenue line and all these other potential policy tailwinds when you just don't know. I mean, we, we saw that happen in ethanol, right? A lot of folks put a lot of money in ethanol in the early days that probably didn't have 
you know, didn't necessarily get great returns. I'm sure plenty of people made money, but there's a lot of gun shy private equity folks. Uh, I can tell you firsthand, there's a lot of gun shy private equity folks and investors who got burned by the early days of ethanol and and overbilled into into sort of an uncertain policy that didn't necessarily do a great job of supporting them. And, you know, again, the world's just shifted a lot in the last 20 years. And so there's certain things about policy that we think are are easy to invest on the back of and others that are challenging. And it's an it's an evolving beast. Right. I mean, you've got new policies in, in Canada that should have the impact that the LCFS has had in California or more so than that. And there's you know constantly evolving policies in Europe. And so it's a big part of, of the evaluation of any given investment. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, Paul. No, it's a challenge though, isn't it? Because much of those valuations come down to whatever credit tax breaks are applied to any given product and its environmental attributes. And obviously, you know, ethanol and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, RINs and all this piece. But also the, it's a competitive landscape as well, as you mentioned earlier on that, you know, there aren't that many projects, right? At the moment in general, you know, this is a relatively nascent sector globally. And You've got to be competitive in your in your bids, and therefore, if you're discounting those policy underpin prices, it, it makes it a you know you're not going to be as uh, competitive as dare I say it the private equity group who got it who got who got it wrong, right? And somebody who's taking more risk, yeah, absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a it's it's not for the faint of heart for sure. I think balancing, especially when you think about the evolution and, and, and the capital that's trying to flow into the space, conventional energy is, is a really old business. And there's new ways to do it, new ways to move it, and new ways to extract it. But, but when you get oil out of the ground, you have a good sense of what it's worth. And you see a futures market that's priced out four or five years, maybe even further in some cases. You can understand you know, what you're dealing with. And, and, and there's a way to sort of run models that that give you some semblance of comfort on what you might have not to say that there isn't unintended consequences and and surprises that pop up and and make you know people accidentally a lot of money or lose them a lot of money but but it doesn't have the same layers of risk as this energy transition right and it's because it's a new thing it's a it's got new policy new regulations new molecules new technologies and so I think as investors that have you know, moved or are looking to move either all of their capital or some of their capital out of conventional energy into the energy transition, you know, they're looking at it going, God, this is so much riskier than the, all the stuff that I was investing in for the last 20 years or 30 years or 50 years. How do I get comfortable with it? Right. And that's a, that's, that's a huge challenge. There's, we should just note on people as well because there's a there is a challenge there, right? And and the projects we've done, obviously, we worked with you guys in the past, and you know more broadly in the sector, you've there is very talent is a scarce resource. It's even scarcer when it comes to some of these new technologies and all facets of them. And as you say, you know you've got, really got a choice between okay, do I, I need to somehow bring in people who are familiar with these these new technologies, with these new policies, but I also kind of need that weathered experience of someone who's, you know, seen t- a longer time series in any given energy play as well, right? It, it in and of itself, even 
finding your the C-suite for a portfolio company, you know, in this rapidly changing environment is is a challenge and a little bit of trying to find a, a combined team that capture all of those aspects. It's a microcosm of everything I just walked through on, you know, on the risk side, right? It's the same thing where you've got, there's not a lot of talent that has done the things that are needed today. So you're trying to find skill sets that are applicable that can transfer from whether it's conventional energy or agriculture or renewable power, right? And, and sort of just the evolution of that and the policies and regulations around that. And how does that look now in some of these other, you know, emerging markets? It's all, it's all pretty complicated stuff. I, I, it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. And it's also, there's a, there's an opportunity for geographic arbitrage, right? Because, you know, there is yeah. talent that sits in <laughs> Europe that, you know, brings a lot to the table when it comes to certain aspects of the energy transition. Unfortunately, this is at the same time where it's almost impossible to get visas globally. You know, we've got this sort of fracturing and deglobalization of the global talent pool, which in and of itself is causing a challenge, right? Whereas 10 years ago, you know, if you were to look at the renewable power community leading the charge in the US, many of them were from Spain, Latin America, you know, other regions where they'd had five years jump on on the US. And, and you know, I just find it fascinating that that's now, for the most part, a pipeline that's been shut down or is much more difficult to do. So so I think that's a good good sampling of the, the complexities. And you're you, you know, sort of like you're doing private equity on hard mode when it comes to a lot of this stuff. What does it mean as well? You know, there's a lot of money flowing into this, right? And and the nature of that has changed since COVID. There's a lot sort of an emphasis on ESG. I think we're in sort of ESG 2.0 as a, as a guest, an earlier guest has, has highlighted. And there's, you know, a, a zooming in on the energy transition. But there's there's not that many projects compared to the capital that's interested in it. So I'd like to get a statement on the sort of the, the competitive landscape out there and what that looks like. And then finally sort of move towards kind of what you think would be accelerators to achieving the energy transition with private investment and what may be things that can happen when it comes to policy and so forth that would help that. But let's let's start on the competitive landscape. I mean, what does that look like today? You know, I, I think as I as I sort of mentioned earlier, there's there's a lot of capital that's been formed by, you know, the big incumbent firms, TPG and Brookfield and BlackRock and, and groups like that, where you know, I think these are like hundreds of billions of dollars across those large platforms that are pointed at, at energy transition or decarbonization. But but as I also mentioned, and as you've acknowledged, that there's just not enough opportunities for that capital today. And I think the the competition is really in in securing those opportunities that are seeking capital. But the other side of it is, you know, a lot of those groups that I mentioned a moment ago, they don't have the capacity to drill down to the small opportunity set that we're looking at, right? So we may look at, at deals that are in the 20 to $80 million range on a, on a typical basis. That doesn't mean things above and below that aren't considered, but, but that's generally the, the scope or the quantum of capital that we're looking to deploy in any specific opportunity. And, you know, Brookfield, they just have a hard time drilling down that small. They need to be deploying much more. I mean, if they have 15 or 20 billion in their last fund that they raised focused on this stuff, 
that's, that's hundreds of, of portfolio companies. It's really untenable. And so where the competition lies for us, and I think where the competition is, is focused today is building out those platforms that are ultimately probably best suited inside the larger buyout shops as they mature to steady state operations and cash flows and somewhat predictable growth. And so, you know, where we see competition is, is really from either our mid-market private equity firms that understand construction and development, or it's strategics that are saying, I've got to be in this space, so I'm going to deploy some capital here and, you know, either back a team or build out my team and provide them with the capital they need for growth. And that, that is probably the largest pool of, of of competition for us is the strategics rather than other financial sponsors. Yeah. Can you just define strategics just for me? Yeah. I mean, it's anything from Shell and BP, or Chevron to utilities, right? Folks that are using the products that they're creating uh, is how I think of strategics, yeah. right? Or, or distributing and moving the products that they're creating rather than an institutional investor that's just there for a, a return on who have been incredibly active right and again it's a case where in that you know one could argue uh, not in all cases and maybe not in many sometimes the economics also don't apply there either right there's just a, a, a stakeholder demand that there's some kind of action going on and you know that improves multiples and so forth and so they can be very competitive on on these projects and as you say as well right they they also benefit from typically having the talent inside that can can better operationalize some of these things earlier on, right? I mean, that's a pretty com- powerful competitor, I imagine. Yeah, I, again, and that's that's why I, I make this statement that I do that. That's probably our largest competitor in in these projects is the strategics who who have the capital, the know how, the people, the need, <laughs> and and in, in many cases now they've made they've made commitments and they're trying to meet those commitments. So they, while we may have a a return threshold that we're underwriting to, as we evaluate projects, they may not, they have a lower cost of capital most likely. So they certainly can beat us on, on the cost of capital, but they also may have other reasons to do an investment that Mm. we can't compete with. But all that being said, I think the other side of it is it's not too much different with the strategics than it is with some of the larger private equity firms. Yeah. Sometimes the, the the micro granular nature of an individual project is is just challenging for them, and and so they don't get much bang for a fifty million dollar investment, and so they're they're looking to to find ways to deploy far more capital than that. Yeah, you know, again, that's that's where we try to play. And, and then I I know this is actually a really tough question, but it's kind of like. What is the grease for the financial financial world to really? We we started at the top talking about trillions of dollars needed, right? And you've highlighted some of the complexities. I mean, it's kind of we're we're in a year when I think the the largest number of people are going to vote ever in the history of humanity, right? You've got elections across Asia, across Europe, here in the United States, and there is this sort of somewhat mismatch between policy timeframes and investing timeframes, both a lag in, in, in enacting and so forth. You've also got a mismatch between, for example, 
you know, federal policy or EU policy, and then how it actually hits the road in terms of local councils and local policy and so forth. I mean, and again, I know this is an unfair question, but what do you think are sort of some changes that could happen that would really accelerate the the ability of a capital to flow into the energy transition? Yeah, well, listen, I, I mean, the the thing that always comes up in our discussions internally and with, with external stakeholders is, is policy, right? And I think getting either it's coordination on policy or, you know, the carbon border adjustment type, type where, where, look, I think when we look at policy, we don't necessarily need favorable policy. What we want is stable policy. And that's, much easier to underwrite than policy that's moving around. And so, you know, part of that comes with time, as I, my example earlier in the RFS, where, you know, there were moments in the RFS where you didn't know what it was going to look like the next year at all. I mean, it, it was really sort of two sides of a coin and, and however it landed, it landed. And I think we're just sort of past that. Now it's a, a market mechanism and you know we've been seeing that in the RFS recently. There's there's been a lot of build out of renewable diesel production capacity, and there's a a big generation of RINs, and so RIN prices are down, you know, a third of where they were a year ago. They're down, you know, they are one third of where they were a year ago. We're not concerned with that because we understand the policy is stable, and so I think that's the piece that. To try to answer your question, Paul, that I think we need the most, it's going to take the most time, <laughs> right? Because you don't get policy stability overnight. You don't get it by having a new exciting policy. Yeah. You get it by having that policy beaten and, and tested. And so, you know, it, it is a bit of a, a patient process that you've got to sit through and, and understand that. And, and that's not easy, but starting to see durable global policies or durable national policies across the globe is probably a better way to put that will bring capital into it and and i think that's that's probably the best way for me to put it yeah yeah which is um looks pretty pretty uncertain given sort of the volatility globally in politics and also now increasingly in judicial uh, rulings as well well, it's been a, a really interesting discussion and, um, you know, tough gig. Um, but I, I guess I just want a, a couple of minutes on, on Cresta just so people know uh, what you are about and, and where they can find you. Sure. Yeah, I mean, they can they can find us on the web. Obviously, our uh, our website is crestafunds.com. You know, we are, as I said earlier, we're a middle market private equity firm really focused on, on development opportunities around the energy transition and, and focused exclusively on molecules. So we don't, you know, build wind turbines and solar panels and things like that. We're, we're focusing on decarbonizing the industrial sector and, and inside that broad definition, the ag and, and, and ag waste and municipal waste and transportation and, and heavy industry. And then where we can try to bring you know proven technologies to emitters and and help them achieve their carbon reduction goals 
Fantastic. Well, John, it's been a, a pleasure to have you on, and, and hopefully we can have you again in a in a couple of years and, and continue the discussion. It's um, you know, it's a, a lot of food for thought, I think, in the in our discussion. Thanks for having me, Paul. Great discussion as as always with you, and uh, best of luck. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.